Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. To every Oh, good morning, everyone. Poppy is off, and we start with some sad news to share this morning. Legendary singer-songwriter David Crosby has died. Such a loss. Yeah, it is. Such We've been losing a lot of people, especially in the music industry. Yeah, but very few people, I feel like, moved as many people as he did for as long as he did. Yeah, I mean, he had such a special so. career. So he defined the sound and the spirit of the 1960s. So coming up, David Crosby, in his own words, about how he would be remembered. But first, is Russia getting ready to launch an all-out attack? Ukraine bracing for a potential offensive. The U.S. and its allies sending more weapons. But will it be enough to stop Vladimir Putin's onslaught? Also this morning, President Biden is breaking his silence. What he is now saying about how he believes he's handled the classified documents that were found at his home and office. Alec Baldwin facing criminal charges for that deadly 2021 shooting on a movie set. The VA explaining why she decided to prosecute the actor more than a year later. We're going to begin in Ukraine where Russian forces might be gearing up for a major offensive. Ukraine has been begging for more weapons before it's too late. And now the U.S. is delivering more firepower. The Pentagon announcing a new military aid package that includes air defense systems and a sizable fleet of armored vehicles. CNN is learning CIA Director Bill Burns personally flew to Kyiv for a secret meeting with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky to brief him on what Vladimir Putin is planning to do in the coming months. And this morning, Zelensky thanked allies at the Ramstein Air Base in Germany for continued support. Here it is. And I'm truly grateful to all of you for the weapons you have provided every unit helps to save our people from terror. But time, time remains a Russian weapon. We have to speed up. Time must become our common weapon. Just like air defense and artillery, armored vehicles and tanks, which we are negotiating about with you, and which actually will make the victory. Worldwide coverage this morning, CNN covering it from the U.S. and abroad. Kali Atwood is standing by at the State Department. We begin with Clarissa Ward live in Kyiv. Good morning, Clarissa. What have we learned so far about this morning's meeting? Well, essentially what you're seeing, Don, are, you know, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin and also, as you heard there, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky making a very sort of full-throated appeal for the urgency of this moment. We heard Lloyd Austin talking about the fact that Russia is low on ammunition, but they are taking this moment to regroup, to re-equip, to recruit. Uh, we heard, as you uh, played out in that clip from President Zelensky, uh, again, urging the importance 
importance of getting tanks, particularly, uh, so that Ukraine can engage in some uh, offensives before this much-anticipated Russian offensive. It's important to remember, Russia has about 150,000 mobilized troops who are currently coming towards the end of their training, and it's anticipated that they will be moving on to the battlefield. So Ukraine wants very much to be ready to meet the moment. There is still a lot of back and forth about what weapons will be given. The issue of tanks, of course, is at the front and foremost. And as Zelensky himself said, Don, uh, and I want to quote him directly, hundreds of thank yous are not hundreds of tanks. That is what Ukraine says it needs. Tanks, long-range artillery, also F-16s. The latter two not really on the table, but tanks continue to be uh, a, a source of controversy with some of people who are attending the contact group, Don. Yeah, and you were saying, you know, basically all, all of this discussion, there's no time for that. Terrorism doesn't allow for that. And Kylie, this has been the standoff between Germany and the United States over these tanks with the U.S. and other Western allies urging Germany to send them. And they're saying, OK, well, the United States also needs to send tanks. So they give us some diplomatic cover. Where do things stand right now? Well, we don't see a direct path forward here because, as Clarissa was saying, Ukraine has said that they need more tanks. Over the weekend, the Brits announced that they were sending tanks. And now a lot of countries in Germany who have German-made tanks also want to send those to Ukraine. They can't do that without the green light from Germany. And Germany isn't doing that yes, and yet. And they are saying it's up to the United States to send tanks, with Chancellor Schultz saying they don't want to do anything alone, especially, you know, not without the United States. So U.S. officials are trying to uh, watch this, figure out a pathway forward. But we should note that American officials aren't fundamentally opposed to sending tanks into Ukraine. Their concerns are over logistics here because U.S.-made tanks, these Abrams, are a bit more challenging to operate. They aren't as great on the battlefield. They take a lot of fuel. So they believe that they wouldn't be as useful to the Ukrainians for them to get up and running really quickly while they say that Leopards, that's the German-made tank, are just going to be more efficient for the Ukrainians to actually use on the battlefield. We really don't know the pathway forward here. We should note that Overnight, the incoming defense minister for Germany said that they aren't aware of any direct linkage between U.S. needing to send tanks and Germany needing to send tanks. So maybe they're backing off here. There may be a pathway forward, but we'll continue to watch this. And this comes just after director of the CIA, Bill Burns, made a secret visit to Ukraine. And in that visit, he was talking about what Russia is planning this spring. Let's talk more about that, Clarissa. I want to go back to that, the CIA, CIA director briefing Zelensky on the, this coming offensive. It's a pretty extraordinary moment in this war. It is. There, there's definitely a sense, I would say, that we're at an inflection point. There were a lot of major Ukrainian counteroffensives uh, towards the end of last year. The momentum was on Ukraine's side. Now we're seeing things settle into uh, what Avril Haines, the director of national intelligence, called not a stalemate, but kind of a grinding conflict. And so there is a sense of urgency that Ukraine really needs to kind of step in and fill the vacuum here before Russia has an opportunity to regroup, because while they are running out of ammunition. They are also trying to gear up uh, their kind of military industrial complex and get that off the ground and running. And so the, the, the moment really is now and in the next few months. Now, of course, it's wintertime. But as you get into the spring after the rains, 
Uh, and there really are more opportunities for Ukraine to launch further counteroffensives and try to take back more territory. They need to have, uh, you know, in the words of their own leaders and many who support them at this contact group meeting, they need to have the weaponry and the defensive capabilities to do that. And what the frustration has been on this end, on is this kind of drip, drip approach where they ask for something, the original answer is no, no way, and then after six months it's maybe, and then after a year they finally get it, but only in small increments. They want it now. They want it all. They want to finish this thing. All right. Clarissa, Kylie, thank you very much. We'll check back in with both of you. Um, also this morning over at the White House, President Biden finally speaking out about his classified documents. For a while, he has been relatively quiet about it, and there have been questions about, of course, the handling of it. He is now defending the White House's handling of the documents that were found inside his private home and his office. We found a handful of documents were failed uh, or filed in the wrong place. We immediately turned them over to the archives of the Justice Department. We're fully cooperating, looking forward to getting this resolved quickly. I think you're going to find there's nothing there. I have no regrets. I'm following what the lawyers have told me they want me to do. It's exactly what we're doing. There's no there there. President Biden echoing that defiant stance we have heard from White House officials in recent days over the way that they've handled it. Of course, this has come as Republicans have accused President Biden of being hypocritical in this matter, given this interview that he gave last fall about President Trump's retention of classified documents. When you saw the photograph of the top secret documents laid out on the floor at Mar-a-Lago, what did you think to yourself? how that could possibly happen, how one, anyone could be that irresponsible. The White House, we should note, has continued to note the differences here, saying that they have cooperated with the National Archives, with the Justice Department investigation. Former President Trump, as we know, famously refused to give back documents as they were sought by the National Archives. He also... Uh, got in a fight with the Justice Department, where it ended up in this historic raid of a former president's property over these materials. CNN's Jeremy Diamond is live at the White House on this matter. Jeremy, quite a defiant stance from President Biden saying that he has no regrets about how this has been handled. Yeah, no doubt about it, Caitlin. And this is only the third time that we have heard President Biden really substantively answer questions uh, about this issue since it uh, was revealed 10 days ago. But it is the first time that we've heard those words from President Biden. No regrets. And critically, we have to point out that the question that President Biden was being asked here was, does he have any regrets about not revealing this sooner, not revealing this before the midterm elections when this was discovered, when these first documents were discovered uh, back on November 2nd? The president saying no regrets uh, about the, the, the uh, timing here of uh, the revelation. And, but what he's also doing here is he's maintaining his position that he believes uh, that he's going to continue to cooperate with the Department of Justice investigation. That, of course, has been a critical line from the White House here. And also part of the White House's strategy here has been to hammer home that cooperation in order to show the difference between what he has done, what President Biden is doing here in his response to this revelation, and how former President Trump has handled uh, uh, his side of the classified documents uh, story. What we're also hearing here is we're seeing the White House taking a more aggressive posture towards House Republicans. We didn't hear President Biden say that himself, but we've heard White House officials in recent days really try and uh, draw a distinction between the cooperation that they're showing towards the Department of Justice and a more defiant stance toward House Republicans and their plans to investigate this matter from the House Oversight Committee. 
Yeah, they've clearly promised to be aggressive, something the White House will be dealing with. Jeremy Diamond, thank you for that reporting. We go now to Alec Baldwin, and he's going to face criminal charges in the fatal shooting of his cinematographer on the Rust set. You're looking at pictures of him clearly distraught right after the 2021 shooting. Helena Hutchins died when she was struck by a live round of ammunition fired from a prop gun, a gun that Baldwin was holding. The DA says that the actor will face two counts of involuntary manslaughter along with the armorer. That is a person who is in charge of all the weapons on set. And the district attorney telling CNN that even famous people are treated the same under the law. This is really about justice for Helena Hutchins. Um, we've talked to many actors, um, A-list and otherwise, that have said that they always check their guns that, or they have someone check it in front of them. So it's not, it, an actor doesn't get a free pass just because they're an actor. So CNN's Chloe Malas is here with the details. Chloe, good morning to you. What are you hearing from Baldwin? Well, so first of all, yesterday, Alec Baldwin's attorney telling me that they felt completely blindsided by the criminal charges because they were under the impression that the DA would be giving them a heads up that he would be charged. And you saw that with Dave Halls, the assistant director, getting a plea deal. So they say that that wasn't even on the table, but they wouldn't take one anyway because he maintains his innocence and he wants to see this through to a jury trial, at least for now. But they are saying that they will fight this and that this was a tragic accident. And that's similar to what he told me when we sat down in August. So, he, but he is, again, he has been adamant that he did nothing wrong. Were you, were you able to speak with him? I wasn't. I was out in front of his apartment in downtown Manhattan last night, you know, doing a lot of my segments down there. There were a lot of reporters. He's there upstairs with his kids, you know, obviously very upset. But at the end of the day, he's also talked so highly of Helena Hutchins and how devastating, uh, you know, this has been for her family. But he really points the finger at this chain of command on the set, that it was the armorer and the assistant director who told him that the gun was cold. And his big question is, how did live bullets get to set. This, is, uh, this will send a chill through Hollywood for some because the, the armorer's job is to make sure that everything is safe with a gun. And now you have an actor being charged for something that, they, that many in Hollywood believe it was the responsibility of someone else to make sure that it was safe. So if you look at what SAG is saying, the Screen Actors Guild, they came out with a statement saying that these charges are not the right move. And so they are saying that this is too strong. So almost like in support of Alec Baldwin here. And remember, they were actually going to go film, uh, you know, this movie, Russ. They were going to finish it. The profits were going to go to the family. I actually just want to play a little bit of my interview with Alec Baldwin from August. Here's a little bit of what he had to say. And this is a one in a billion event. And in that one in a billion event, there are two people who didn't do what they were supposed to do. They didn't do. And I, I'm, I'm not sitting there and say, I want them to, you know, to go to prison or I want their lives to be hell. I don't want, but I want everybody to know that those are the two people that are responsible for what happened. But he initial, initially said, so we'll see what happens. This is going to continue and it's going to take a long time to play out in the justice system. Chloe, thank you very much. We appreciate that. Thank you. All right, also some other breaking news in Washington. Investigators at the Supreme Court have just released their report on last year's stunning leaked draft opinion for the a decision that would ultimately overturn Roe versus Wade. But the main takeaway is they still do not know who did it. They were able to determine about 90 people had access to the document at some point, but they don't know who it was that came in contact with this. That was the one ultimately responsible for it becoming public before it became an actual ruling. 
CNN senior legal affairs correspondent Paula Reed is joining us from Washington. Paula, this is pretty remarkable that they spent this much time investigating, but they come out yesterday and they say, you know, we still do not know who ultimately is responsible for this. Yeah, Caitlin, the biggest mystery in Washington remains unsolved. Yesterday, the Supreme Court came out and they said after their investigation, they cannot really identify the responsible party by, quote, preponderance of the evidence. Now, that's a pretty low standard. It just means something's more likely than not. So it appears that after eight months of investigating, they really don't have much to show for their work, even though they interviewed around 100 employees. They even confiscated court-issued laptops and, and mobile devices. I will note, though, it does not appear that they interviewed the justices themselves. I mean, they were outraged by this leak, but it appears that they were allowed to effectively police themselves during this investigation. It's kind of remarkable if they did not actually interview the justices or their spouses or partners about this. Uh, but I think the main takeaway here is the question is, if you have not figured out who did it or how they did it, how do you stop something like this from happening again? Absolutely. And there were some recommendations, even though they couldn't identify the person or persons responsible. And one of the big things is just how do you protect sensitive information? They invited Michael Chertoff to assess this investigation, and he had a few recommendations, including uh, restricting the distribution of hard copies of opinions, also limiting how much information is accessed on outside mobile devices. But, Caitlin, to your point, it is remarkable that they didn't interview the justices. The fact that they have not identified this person it has allowed a lot of amateur internet sleuths to kind of fill the gap. And that results in a lot of people continuing to be suspicious of the other side. And that is not good for the increasingly diminished trust in the high court. Yeah, we've seen the poll numbers. A lot of people don't believe that it's not as apolitical as it should be. Paula Reed, thank you for that reporting. And Caitlin, this morning, the music world is saying goodbye after the death of folk rock legend David Crosby. Teach your children well their father's hell did slowly go Crosby whose career spanned more than five decades on stage was one of the most influential singers and songwriters of all time he was founding member of the birds and Crosby Stills and Nash and was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame twice some of his biggest hits include turn 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 Mr. Tambourine Man and the classic wooden ships Crosby kept touring into his 70s and released several albums between 2014 and 2021. He spoke to our Bill Weir about his legacy. The burst of creativity that you've had. You sing about death. Do you think about how you want to be remembered? Not so much. The songs will do that. They're the best I can do. Death's a weird thing. Everybody's scared to talk about it. The question is, what are you going to do with it? How do you spend that two weeks or that 10 years? And I got that figured out. Family, music. Oh, well, David Crosby was 81 years old. Only once in a while that talent comes. I know. He's going to be so missed. Yeah. He had such a lasting impact. After all the lies about his life, jobs, and school, he wanted to know what people in Congressman George Santos uh, in his own district think we want to know. So CNN went to a high school in the New York lawmaker's backyard to get feedback from the next generation of voters. I mean, I think he's an embarrassment and a pathological liar. I think it's, it's a very scary situation for us. More CNN This Morning to come after the break.
right, this morning, embattled Congressman George Santos is facing more scrutiny, not just from his current voters, but from future voters of 2024. That's when he's actually going to be up for re-election if he stays in office. High school students from Santos's very own district are sharing with CNN what their reaction was upon learning about the many lies that we've reported here from their elected leader. CNN's Gary Tuckman was on the ground. Port Washington, New York, Schreiber High School in Long Island's Nassau County is in the heart of Representative George Santos's third congressional district. I mean, I think he's an embarrassment and a pathological liar. We sit down with a group of AP U.S. history students at Schreiber High. They are 16 and 17, which means they will all be old enough to vote in 2024. How many of you would register as an independent if you registered today? How many of you would register as a Democrat? How many of you would register as a Republican? Their history teacher estimates Republican-leaning students are outnumbered by Democratic-leaning students by an almost two-to-one margin at the school. But I haven't found one kid who is sympathetic to George Santos. They know the importance of the numbers in the House of Representatives. And although Santos represents them for issues that they agree on, they don't have sympathy toward the man. 16-year-old Tej Parekh is one of the future Democrats. I think it's, it's a very scary situation for us, uh, having someone who's so clearly lied and so clearly fabricated his entire resume uh, representing all of us. 16-year-old Nathan Jackman is one of the future Republicans. I like how the Nassau GOP came out against him, but obviously Kevin McCarthy should come out against him and they should have a vote on the House floor in order to expel him from Congress. We asked the teacher if right, we could watch um, a class discussion about Santos. It definitely places some mistrust on your political party. It is These are junior AP students. First of all, what is your initial reaction to knowing that your representative's integrity has been called into question? Romero. It's kind of shocking because how could you, how could you trust them? How could you, if you can lie about just like your life and everything you've done, how can you trust them to do the right thing? How are his lies perhaps different than others, or is it fair game to lie in politics? I mean, I think one of, one of the worst things that he lied about, in my opinion, is lying about the origin of his family, being that they were from, um, they, they, they were survivors of the Holocaust. Well, I think that it's an obvious choice, given that we live in a community where there's lots of Jewish people. We live in New York, that's where 9-11 happened. He's using things directly correlated to our lives to make himself sound better because we have emotional attachment to these events. Especially in politics, like your reputation's always gonna stick with you. Everyone's gonna remember him as, oh, he's the guy that lied about everything and still got into Congress. Has it gotten to a point in politics where we don't really care about integrity? Well, you think about it with, like, cause we'll be applying to colleges soon. If a college found out that we lied about everything on our application, they would immediately kick us out, but he lied about everything and he's gonna get to say it. So it's like we're being held to a higher standard of integrity than politicians in this country. Before we leave Schreiber High, we ask our panel of students this question. You're a constituent of Congressman Santos. If you could say one thing to him, what would you say to him? I just wanna know why he felt the need to do all this. Why would, what would you say to him? If you really want to represent our district and you, you care about the voters and the people, you should resign. What would you say? Resign to keep democracy working properly. You? Apologize and resign now. It's enough. 
You. For the good of the constituents of New York's third, resign. You. For your district and for your party, resign. You. Step down. Gary Tuckman, CNN, Port Washington, New York. It's really interesting to watch because those young people have more integrity than our very adult grown lawmakers in Washington, D.C. Yeah, their perspective on it. And, you know, his district includes parts of Queens and Long Island. What they said, you know, they said there's a lot of Jewish people in this district. They said, uh, obviously, 9-11 hits close to home for everyone in New York. And they were saying to lie about those two, two things they found the most egregious. And you're right, to hear them speak with such clarity and wisdom on this, it, it does show that. And they come forward. They I think... Um, I've been saying this, George Santos needs to speak for himself. He needs to get out there and explain himself to people, and he should come on this very program and do it. So, George, come on, answer some questions. We'd love to have you. Right? Yeah. Well, until then, he's being followed around by reporters, by reporters on Capitol Hill, but he hasn't answered many questions. All right, so let's talk some sports, and it goes beyond sports. The Bills and the Bengals set to meet again after DeMar Hamlin's collapse mid-game. How are players and fans feeling ahead of Sunday's playoffs? Coy Wire standing by live. Coy, just shake your head, Ooh. yes or no, in Buffalo. Is it snowing there? Is, that, <laughs> is it snowing? Sleep? No, rain. No, I see flurries. We'll talk. <laughs> oh, it's brutal. Welcome back, everyone. So it's going to be an emotional rematch on Sunday when the Buffalo Bills host the Cincinnati Bengals for a playoff game just a few weeks after their last game against each other. Now, the game was canceled following the sudden and terrifying collapse of Bills safety, DeMar Hamlin, who suffered a cardiac arrest. So straight now to Coy Wire out in the elements, live in Buffalo for CNN this morning. Good morning to you, sir. I hope you're wearing your your, uh, weather gear there. What's the feeling in Buffalo ahead of the rematch? Uh, very cold. I'm getting blasted on the side of my head, <laughs> pelted by snow, a, a wintry mix, Don, we'll call it. But feelings are metered here, Don. Uh, players, you know, they're managing their mindset for this huge playoff game, but also those lingering emotions uh, from the last time they played the Bengals. A, a family spokesperson for DeMar Hamlin uh, tells ESPN that DeMar still requires oxygen. He uh, gets winded easily, a long recovery ahead. But players uh, say across the board that spirits are lifted now that DeMar Hamlin is back in that building. It's been good to see him, um, you know, with a smile on his face and, uh, you know, guys love having him back in the building. It's been a welcome sight to see DeMar Hamlin back at the Bills facilities on a daily basis this week. To see three just smile and just wave and just, you know, put his hearts up and keep it pushing, you know, it's a, like it's a positive energy bubble that's just floating around the facility. It's been just over two weeks since he suffered cardiac arrest on the field in Cincinnati. I don't like how he went down. The NFL ultimately canceled that game, but this Sunday, the Bills and Bengals will face each other for the first time since that horrific scene, and there's no question it'll be on the players' minds. Just something that uh, I, I can't get, I can't unsee. Uh, every time I close my eyes, I, it, it, it replays. That tragic moment, though, has also brought out the best in humanity. Fans have donated millions to Hamlin's charity, and others are using the moment to help raise awareness for heart health. Go donate blood. Go get CPR certified. Whatever you can do, just do one thing that can make a small difference in one person's life, and that's all we ask. 
a huge wave of support for heart health and of course for Damar Hamlin. Don, check these out. Uh, the team will be freed up, as Deion Dawkins says. Uh, Roger Saffold, Von Miller, all posting these pendants. Yesterday, the team will be wearing it on the back. Don, a quote from Damar Hamlin saying, "If you get a chance to show some love today, do it. It won't cost you anything." Nice. I'd love to have one of those, Coy, but I guess it's just for the team. You can get one made, but that's really amazing. Thank you, sir. Stay warm. Stay dry if you can. Got it. All right. Thanks. All right. This morning, it is time for, if you were watching yesterday, a key outfit alert. The results are in. They might be a little mixed. Uh, Don's sweatshirt suit debut that he wore yesterday morning. This is what Stephen Colbert had to say about it. May not be. You know, I love me a Don Lemon. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah. Uh, Don's uh, a dear, dear friend, uh, Soul Cycle Emergency Contact. And <laughs> I, uh, of course, I always watch the, the CNN, what's it called? Mm. CNN This Morning. CTM, we call it. CNN This Morning. And I was watching This Morning, and I was a little taken aback because I didn't, I didn't expect uh, this. Could you show what he was wearing? There you go. Oh. Um, you know, uh, I believe a great man once said, what the is that because he looks I know they want to add some comedy to CNN and this is hilarious but how do you report the news in that outfit how do you actually talk about tragedy wearing that because what could be more tragic than that look he had this morning and could you put it back up he looks like he went for like he's like a high school track teacher who went for a run and then got a little hungry and stopped at a restaurant, but it was too nice of a restaurant, and they said, sir, you have to wear a jacket. So he then, then he, he stole a jacket from an extra from Guys and Dolls. Anyway, Don, uh, you got a lot to answer for. I hope you talk about this tomorrow morning on the show. I'll be watching. Oh! A well, challenge. Colbert got his wish. <laughs> Do you want to respond to him? Um... I do, I do, I do, I do. I mean, look, for a man who wears, I wear a pink suit. I'm wearing a pink suit. It's not white, by the way. I've worn it before. Um, okay, so look, I love Stephen Colbert. I think he's um, funny. Obviously, I love comedians to have a little leeway. It was interesting. It, I, I didn't expect that reaction. It's, for me, it was sort of like a Rorschach test to about wearing that outfit. And people thought, first of all, it's not a um, sweatshirt or whatever. It was a sweater that had a hood on it. Um, anyways, I don't know. I don't know if I want to get into it because I was actually really surprised by it. Look, Stephen, Stephen, here's the thing that I wear, I make lots of different outfit choices, right? Yeah. And when I, when I took this job, uh, one of the things was we want you to relax and be more comfortable and sort of go with what the, what is happening in the world right now. People aren't wearing suits as much. Um, our lots has changed since uh, the pandemic, right? So... I just found it interesting that there was such a reaction because online I got a lot of negative reaction. But hold on. So yeah, but that's online. You always get negative. I got ne negative reaction. But I just want to say that a lot has changed. I understand more of how you feel when women talk about when they talk about women's skirts and women's outfits and their hair and their makeup or women whatever. Women get scrutinized. Yeah, I never you get see what scrutinized. it's like. Men never get scrutinized That's a really that good much. point. So um, I think that uh, have fun with comedy. I think if... Um, Barack Obama can get criticized for a tan suit. Um, if Vladimir Zelensky can fight a war in a hoodie, if Trayvon Martin can start a revolution in a hoodie, then Don Lemon can tell the news in a hooded sweater. I think John Fetterman wears a hoodie on Capitol Hill. If John Fetterman can become 
a, a, a senator or Congress, a senator in a hoodie, then Don Lemon can tell the news. In a the hoodie. question is, would you wear it again? Of course. Tomorrow. And I will wear it again. We'll wear some version of that. I may not wear the same thing. I don't like to repeat outfits. I do every once in a while. I wore this on purpose to, because we always say, you know, men can't wear pink. Women, you know, are supposed to wear certain colors. Pink is a woman's color that you're wearing. It's not. We have to get over that stuff. Men used to wear dresses and wigs. Things change. Styles change. So, Stephen, I love you. I'm glad you started this conversation, but it is like a Rorschach test. I was actually surprised at who said what about what I wore yesterday. I think and people... I, by the way, I don't just roll out of bed and not think about it. I think about exactly everything I wear. I have a pink overcoat that goes with this. Did you wear it today? I did not bring it. It's not cold enough. And it's raining, and I don't want to get it messed up. I think people should wear whatever they want. Thank you, Caitlin Collins. Anyway, all Thanks, right. Thanks, Stephen. <laughs> we got a lot going on this morning. Russia's former president and top security council official has threatened nuclear, the use of nuclear weapons, if Russia were to lose its own war. From the front lines to our studio, Will Ripley is here to discuss. There he is on this side yeah. of the pod. I thought it was too Time remains a Russian weapon. We have to speed up. Time must become our common weapon. Just like air defense and artillery, armed vehicles and tanks, which we are negotiating about with you. That's Ukrainian President Zelensky just moments ago calling for more support, speaking to ministers of defense from several nations at the Ramstein Air Force Base in Germany. We're also learning this morning of a secret meeting that happened between the CIA director here in the U.S., Bill Burns, and President Zelensky, where Burns briefed Zelensky in Kyiv last week on what the U.S. expectations are for Russia's battlefield planning in the spring, according to sources. That meeting comes as U.S. officials are closely watching a potential Russian offensive in the coming months. That's what they were talking about. Joining us now to talk about this, who better? CNN senior international correspondent Will Ripley, who we are so happy to have here in studio. You know, we've been watching what President Zelensky was saying all morning with Defense Secretary Austin. A fight basically is happening right now, the standoff between the U.S. and Germany over sending tanks to Ukraine. And he's saying, you can give us a thousand thank yous. We need tanks, basically. Well, the Ukrainians have been saying they need more weapons from the very beginning. I mean, the rest of the world, the West, is, is pumping billions of dollars into this war, but the Ukrainians are paying with their lives every single day. And a lot of people are dying. And the lines have been essentially holding for months. Uh, you know, you have horrific attacks by the Russians. Uh, you have huge numbers of, of fatalities that go unreported. When I was there, I mean, every day in front of our hotel, there's a funeral happening. And with every funeral, with every death, the Ukrainian anger and hatred grows, and the resolve grows to you know, take back what Russia took nine years ago, to take back Crimea and, and retake the territory that Russia is currently occupying. And they say they cannot do that with the weapons that they have currently. They need more. And that's what you hear from President Zelensky. As you know, Will, the, the, one of the big concerns with this war is that the possible use of nuclear weapons. And you hear, you know, people like Vladimir Putin uh, threatening it. Russia's former president suggesting that nuclear war could happen in Ukraine if Russia is defeated. I mean, there have been several threats like this. There have, and the Russians have been, and Putin himself have been talking about nukes because it is one of the few cards that Russia knows they have that they can play that they hope will intimidate the West to not give Ukraine the kind of weapons that they need for these counteroffensives to take back territory. You know, the Russians have been losing on the battlefield, but they are regrouping. We were up, you know, to the northern border in Belarus where the Ukrainians have been digging trenches, the kind that we saw 100 years ago. You know, these are World War I fighting techniques, but the Ukrainians 
Ukrainians are bracing themselves for this possible ferocious Russian ground invasion that could happen from the north in addition to the front lines, uh, you know, in the east and to the south. So uh, their resources are, are stretched thin. They have they're certainly trying the best they can. It's the dead of winter, but things could get very difficult. And that's, I think, why there's this real urgency to get more weapons in as soon as possible. And luckily, we got you here on set before you're flying back to Taiwan in just a few hours or you report from. And one thing that has happened with Russia's invasion of Ukraine is there's questions of the global consequences. And obviously, Chinese President Xi Jinping, there's a threat of him invading Taiwan. We know he's watching closely what has happened with Putin. You know, what are you going to be watching when you go back? Well, certainly we want to see uh, what the Chinese military activity near Taiwan is. They've been flying planes. They've been conducting military drills near the island. They have drones that they're flying for reconnaissance. And the Chinese have refused to condemn Putin's actions. You know, Xi and Putin uh, have publicly at least a close relationship. And even though China hasn't provided direct military su support to Russia, they certainly are helping to buffer the impact of sanctions by supporting the Russian economy. Uh, Xi Jinping has stated repeatedly and clearly that he intends to take Taiwan, to take control of Taiwan, an island that the communist leaders have never actually controlled, but they have claimed as their own territory for more than 70 years. And for more than 70 years, the Chinese military has been preparing. They've been training for what they view as an inevitable attempt to retake the island. They say they would you know, like to do it peacefully if possible, but there's certainly no interest in Taiwan to simply be reabsorbed by China, which is what Xi Jinping says needs to happen. He wants it to happen while he's in control. So the Taiwanese, they are increasing their military conscription uh, to a year. They're trying to get more weapons from the United States. But there's a lot that needs to happen to be prepared for what a lot of analysts view as inevitable, which is a Chinese attempt to invade Taiwan. It's so good to have you here. And we'll work for you. you represent what CNN is all about. Watch you in, in Russia and to watch you in, in Ukraine, to watch you in Asia during the pandemic and just the great work that uh, people like your international correspondents are doing, going into danger and harm's way almost every day. Really appreciate it. And it's so good to see you. You guys are both reporters, too. You've been to Ukraine yeah. and, uh, you know, I'll see you out in Asia hopefully soon. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you very much. All right. So the former uh, the former House Speaker, I should say, Nancy Pelosi, opening up about her husband's health after the October attack at their San Francisco home. What she told our Chris Wallace. More CNN this morning to come after the break. Police officers are often told, expect the unexpected. Many of them do. For an officer in Long Island, though, in New York, that advice could not be more true. He has helped deliver five babies over the last five years. Sinan's Bryn Gingras has more in this week's Beyond the Call of Duty. Yeah. He's called the baby whisperer. <laughs> That's because Suffolk, New York, police sergeant John Eric Negron has delivered five babies in the last five years. I guess the record lives on, so we'll see how many we could take it to. So many babies, a stork is now pinned to his uniform. When I became a police officer, it was because I wanted to help people. Um, but I didn't know it was going to be helping people deliver their kids. While on duty, Negron always just seems to be in the right place at the right time. Myself and the same paramedic that delivered baby number three, we pulled up to the house at the same time, and he just looked at me. He's like, you got to be kidding me. He's like, this is happening again with you. All jokes aside, Negron says this is the most serious call an officer can receive. He will never forget the first time it happened because it changed his life. I was just doing some work on the computer, and a call came over of a mother going into labor in her kitchen. Only thing I remember is when he was born, he 
Mike put him on my chest and he was just purple. The father of the baby, Mike Papalardo, he was at the front door. He was covered in blood and said the baby had been born and he still wasn't breathing. John came in through the door. I was like, I was like, I looked at him first of all. I was like, this guy looks like he's like a young kid. I'm like, oh God. That training kicked in again and I said, we need to clear his airway. He's like, do you have a turkey baster? I'm like, no, I have a syringe. So he gave me that and I was able to extract whatever liquid was blocking the baby's airway. And then he took a breath shortly after that. Without John, I, I don't know if Bryce would be here. Bryce Papalardo, a healthy boy. Soon after his birthday. John reached out to me and was texting me, hey, how's Bryce doing? And then we were like, he genuinely cares about Bryce. So it was an easy decision to say like, hey, we want this guy in Bryce's life. I mean, he's been there for, for him since day one. And and that's how Negron went from first responder to godfather. What a sweet car. I wish I had a car like that. They're always together. They, he comes for Christmas, birthdays. birthdays. At five years old, it may be no surprise. Bryce wants to be a police officer. I want to save people like what he saved my life. <laughs> it's a special bond that I have with this family. Um, he knows I'll be there for him forever. Bringing Grass, CNN, New York. Fully cooperating, looking forward to getting this resolved quickly. I think you're going to find there's nothing there. I have no regrets. I'm following what the lawyers have told me they want me to do. It's exactly what we're doing. There's no there there. So good Friday morning, everyone. Caitlin and I are here. Poppy is off today. You heard what he said. No there there. He's no regrets. President Biden not sorry for not revealing sooner that classified documents were found in his private office, insisting there is no there there. Also, a key NATO meeting on military aid for Ukraine is underway. Can the U.S. convince Germany to send its tanks to Kiev? It's certainly trying. Blindsided, actor Alec Baldwin's response after learning he will face criminal charges for the shooting death of a cinematographer on the set of his film, Rust. Plus. This happens in her classroom, no less. She's six. She's terrified because the person that was advocating for her got hurt. She got hurt. A very emotional town hall in Virginia after a six-year-old brings a gun to school and shoots his teacher, the family of that child, speaking out this morning. But first this morning, Ukrainian President Zelensky is making another desperate plea for more weapons before it's too late. There are signs that Russia is regrouping and preparing to launch another major offensive. And CNN has learned this morning that CIA Director Bill Burns personally flew to Kyiv in recent days for a secret meeting with President Zelensky to brief him on what the U.S. believes Putin is planning to do. This morning, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is at Ramstein Air Base in Germany to huddle with other defense ministers. President Zelensky spoke virtually at that meeting. He said thanks, but he needs tanks. But do we have a lot of time? No, terror does not allow for discussion. The terror which burns city after city, and I can thank you hundreds of times, but Hundreds of thank you are not hundreds of tanks. 
The Pentagon has announced it is sending more firepower to Ukraine. The latest weapons package that you're looking at here includes air defense systems and a fleet of armored vehicles, both of which Ukraine needs. CNN's Oren Lieberman is live at the Pentagon this morning. Oren, I, I listened to what Secretary Alston said this morning as he was speaking. He talked about this package. He did not mention the word tanks, though we know that is what they are talking about here behind the scenes. Tanks is what this focus is all about. And it's not the U.S. sending tanks that we've known for quite some time now. We just had that list of what they're sending, $2.5 that makes it the second largest Ukraine aid package the U.S. has provided. Worth noting, the largest package of $3 billion was only a couple weeks ago, so you see that pipeline moving very quickly. About a dozen other countries have already made announcements of what they will send, so weapons are no doubt going into Ukraine from the U.S. and many of the U.S. allies. The key question is tanks, and that's where... Ukraine and President Volodymyr Zelensky are still waiting here. The U.S. working behind the scenes to try to get Germany to approve other countries to send its Leopard tanks, which uh, about a dozen other countries in Europe have. And that's the goal here that has not yet come together. It's also worth noting that Zelensky said time right now is on Russia's side. The world needs to make time a weapon of Ukraine by moving things in faster. The question I think here the regular people would have is, what about the tanks that makes them such a controversial move? Because I know Germany is saying, okay, if we're going to send them, the United States needs to send them as well. So we basically have diplomatic cover here. But why? What's the issue, really? So this is Germany's sticking point. They've said openly they won't send tanks until the U.S. send tanks. But there are two different reasons. The U.S. doesn't want to send its own tanks because they're logistical and maintenance nightmares. They just won't do Ukraine any good quickly on the battlefield. The focus is on leopard tanks, but Germany has just been timid to approve this. The U.S. and others have been working behind the scenes to try to pressure Germany to approve the tanks. They don't need to send them. They need to approve other countries sending, this, sending them. And you have seen open frustration from Poland, which has said they're willing and said, look, we're getting to the point where we might just send the tanks and deal with the consequences. Yeah, we'll see what they ultimately decide. Certainly the pressure is there. Oren, thank you for that report. And next hour, we're going to take you back live on the ground to Kyiv, where CNN's Clarissa Ward is following all of this closely about the real impact it's having on Ukrainians. In the meantime, President Biden says he has no regrets about how he and his team have handled the classified documents that were found from his time as vice president in the Obama administration. As the White House has faced questions about their initial reluctance to share information on this, Biden weighed in just last night as he was touring a California town ravaged by weeks of winter storms, saying that he felt that the American people don't understand why reporters are asking about this and not that. We found a handful of documents were failed uh, or filed in the wrong place. We immediately turned them over to the archives of the Justice Department. We're fully cooperating, looking forward to getting this resolved quickly. I think you're going to find there's nothing there. I have no regrets. I'm following what the lawyers have told me they want me to do. It's exactly what we're doing. There's no there there. Republicans have accused President Biden of hypocrisy after he criticized former President Trump for stashing top-secret documents at Mar-a-Lago. When you saw the photograph of the top-secret documents laid out on the floor at Mar-a-Lago, what did you think to yourself? How that could possibly happen. How anyone could be that irresponsible. But the White House continues to point out the differences here, that President Biden has cooperated with the Justice Department and the National Archives, while the former president refused to give back documents, which led to a historic search warrant being executed on the former president's property. And ahead, 
You're going to want to tune in for this. I'm going to speak with former Democratic Senator Doug Jones. Well, Caitlin is going to speak with former Democratic Senator Doug Jones, who has been critical of Biden's handling of those documents. Also this morning, you know, former President Trump has rarely faced consequences for his very long history of using the courts as a weapon. But this morning he may. A federal judge in Florida has now told former President Trump and his lawyer that they need to pay up. The judge said that Trump and his attorney are liable for nearly a million dollars in sanctions for filing what the judge called a frivolous lawsuit. Trump brought the suit against nearly three dozen of his perceived political enemies, including Hillary Clinton, former FBI director James Comey. The judge not holding back, calling the case inadequate, saying that it should have never been brought and that, quote, no reasonable lawyer would have filed it. This may come as a surprise for the former president, who has been known to work the courts back since his days in real estate. As I have used the laws of this country, just like the greatest people that you read about every day in business have used the laws of this country, the chapter laws, to do a great job for my company, for myself, for my employees, for my family, etc. The judge calling Trump, quote, a mastermind of strategic abuse of the judicial process, and he cannot be seen as a litigant blindly following the advice of a lawyer. He knew full well the impact of his actions. Trump and the attorney in the case for him, Alina Abba, and her firm have been now ordered to pay nearly $940 million. Hmm. It's remarkable. You, you, this is something that's really rare for Trump, for him to actually face some kind of consequence like this, because you've seen how he's wielded the courts, you know, back in his New York days when he was in office. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, listen, that was the M.O. from the 80s, 90s and, and 2000s and even now, he uses the legal system. He uses litigation to wear people down. And, uh, yeah. and because the person, usually the person who he's fighting against has less money than him. Yeah. Right. So he ends up not paying for work that's being done or what have you. But now he's having to pay, which is good. There is there are consequences. Finally, it'll be fascinating to see what Maggie Haberman says about this. We've got her coming up. You know, she wrote that book, basically what you were just talking about, what Trump did in the 80s and 90s and how he used these as such a, a tool. Yeah. And in the meantime, we have to talk about this. Alec Baldwin now says that he was blindsided by the announcement that he will be charged with two counts of involuntary manslaughter in the fatal shooting of cinematographer Helena Hutchins on the set of the movie Rust. Baldwin's lawyer says that the decision to prosecute is a, quote, terrible miscarriage of justice. CNN's Josh Campbell live for CNN this morning. He is in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Josh, good morning to you. What are you learning? Yeah, good morning to you, Don. A significant development here. As you mentioned, authorities plan to charge actor Alec Baldwin with involuntary manslaughter and the death of cinematographer Helena Hutchins. Now, I spoke with the district attorney and the special prosecutor in this case in their first TV interview since announcing those charges, and they told me that this ultimately came down to negligence. In their view, a pattern of unsafe practices on this set. Of course, Alec Baldwin's legal team says that they will be mounting an aggressive defense. An actor doesn't get a free pass just because they're an actor. And that's what's so important is that we're saying here in New Mexico, everyone's equal under the law. More than a year after the deadly onset shooting of Russ cinematographer Helena Hutchins. Actor and producer Alec Baldwin, along with the film's armorer and props assistant Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, will each be charged with two counts of involuntary manslaughter, according to prosecutors. This was a really fast and loose set and that that nobody was doing their job. Set in the Old West, Russ was filming outside of Santa Fe, New Mexico in October 2021. Baldwin and crew members were rehearsing a scene inside a rustic church when a prop gun in the actor's hand discharged. We have two injuries from a movie 
gun shot. Killing cinematographer Helena Hutchins and wounding director Joel Souza. Santa Fe's district attorney Mary Carmick Altwees insists safety was disregarded during production. There were three people that if they had done their job that day, this tragedy wouldn't have happened. And that's David Halls, Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, and Alec Baldwin. The fact is, actors are not firearms experts. National Executive Director for SAG-AFTRA, Duncan Crabtree, Ireland, saying that the district attorney is uninformed. The charges clearly indicate a lack of understanding about the standards and expectations of how a film set operates. Actors cannot be expected and are not expected to do final safety checks or anything of that nature. Rust Assistant Director Dave Halls, who handed Baldwin the gun, has already pleaded guilty to negligent use of a deadly weapon, according to the DA. Baldwin has repeatedly claimed that he pulled back the gun's hammer as far as he could without cocking it and released the hammer, telling CNN and others, Well, the trigger wasn't pulled. I didn't pull the trigger. So you never pulled the trigger? No, 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 no. I, I would never point a gun at anyone and pull a trigger at them, never. never. That was the training that I had. You don't point a gun at me and, and pull the trigger at Baldwin's attorney called the charges a terrible miscarriage of justice, saying he was assured the gun did not have live rounds and that he will fight the charges. While an attorney for Gutierrez-Reed said, we expect that she will be found not guilty by a jury and she did not commit manslaughter. The family of Helena Hutchins in a statement saying, it is a comfort to the family that in New Mexico, no one is above the law. Now, as far as what comes next in this prosecution, the district attorney told me there will be no arrests in this case. So we'll be issuing a summons for Alec Baldwin. And Don, they tell us that the charges in this case will come before the end of this month. All right. We'll be watching and you'll be reporting. Thank you, Josh Campbell. So did prosecutors go too far with the charges? In our next hour, former federal prosecutor Jennifer Rogers and criminal defense attorney Ken Belkin, they're going to lay out their case for and against Baldwin. Also this morning, at least 54 people have died in Peru after a wave of violent protests. The protests are fueled by poor living conditions, inequality, with angry workers demanding the resignation of the president and calling for new general elections. One person, we are told, was killed. Ten have been injured in one southern city where clashes broke out between the protesters and police near the airport and actually even suspended flights on Thursday. A fire also destroyed this historic building in the center of Lima. The weeks of protests have been sparked by the impeachment and removal of the nation's former left-wing president. This morning, the family of the six-year-old boy who shot his teacher in Virginia speaking out. They're calling the incident an unimaginable tragedy, but maintain that the gun he assessed uh, was secured. Meanwhile, parents in the school district are on edge and express their concerns at an emotional town hall. And our students do not wonder if there will be another school shooting. They wonder when and where the next shooting will be. My seven-year-old daughter says that she sits with her head down and cries because she wonders if she will be able to hug her mommy again. But to this board, enough is enough. What will it take? I pray it is not a fourth shooting because that blood will be on your hands. CNN's Brian Todd joins me now. Good morning, Brian. Did or can the boy's parents explain how this happened? 
Well, they try to, Don, and in breaking their silence on this, these parents of the six-year-old boy have given what some might consider a surprising amount of detail about their son. In addition to claiming that the gun was secure at their home, the parents said this through their attorney, quote, our son suffers an acute disability and was under a care plan at the school that included his mother or father attending school with him and accompanying him to class every day. The week of the shooting was the first week when we were not in class with him. We will regret our absence on this for the rest of our lives, end quote. But Don, they don't say specifically what the disability is or whether there were previous disciplinary issues with the boy at school. When we asked their attorney, James Ellenson, about that, he said to us that he could not comment further. Also, Don, this statement does not say how the weapon was secured and how the boy might have gotten access to it. We also asked the attorney about that, and he would not comment. Don? Brian Todd reporting. Brian, thank you so much. All right. Also this morning, we still don't know who leaked the Supreme Court draft opinion overturning Roe versus Wade after a massive investigation. It is one of the worst breaches of confidentiality in the history of the court, which now says its investigation was unable to identify a person responsible by a preponderance of the evidence. Here's what we did learn from the report. At least 90 people had access to the draft. Some of them even told their spouses about it, which is a violation of the court's confidentiality rules. They conducted more than 100 formal interviews of about 97 employees. It does not say, though, and this is key, if any justices or their spouses were interviewed. And we asked, they didn't comment from the court. Our CNN chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst, John Miller, is here to dissect all of this with us. That, I think, is my biggest takeaway, is how can you conduct an investigation and you don't talk to the actual justices or their spouses, potentially? Well, first you have to look at who conducted the investigation. This was not sent over to the FBI, which would be normal in a, in a national leak case. Uh, it was handled by the marshal of the Supreme Court, which is not the U.S. marshals that guard the other courts. It's the Supreme Court has its own marshal. So this is an entity that is in-house, um, reports to the justices, and its job is to protect the court, um, to investigate threats against the, just, the justice. It's, its expertise doesn't lie in complex leak investigations. Let me, okay, this is an unorthodox question, but CNN, CNN was asked whether this, uh, the Supreme Court justices themselves were investigating the process. And of course, public information officer said that uh, she could only refer to CNN. CNN should only refer to the final report. So it's not clear if they were or not. So my question is, do they really want to know? Maybe they don't want to know because it would open up a whole nother big can of worms if they found out that it was actually a justice who did it. Do you understand what I'm saying? I understand what you're saying. Uh, I don't get that feeling. I get the feeling that the Supreme Court, um, and I know this because I've talked to people there over the years when I was in Washington, is a place where they confer enormous trust on the employees. Very much like when I was in the intelligence community. They confer enormous trust with people on their discretion, their ability to keep secrets, to be professional. But it's also an interesting environment. You have law clerks who are coming in in one-year stints, who are coming and going for short periods of time. And as we learn from this, uh, that's a lot of people looking at an extraordinarily sensitive document, 126 interviews uh, done of 97 people. That means a few people got interviewed again and then again. Mm -hmm. So they were looking at a handful of people who they thought were most likely but didn't reach that preponderance of evidence. 
Yeah, it's notable they said preponderance of evidence. Isn't that typically something you'd use in a court case or something? Preponderance is uh, in civil and, um, right? Right, so that's the, that's the 4951. Um, and I think think that uh, I think that they had people they liked, but they didn't get there. But they identified a lot of problems. Too many people getting too many documents, printers that are not attached to the network that aren't keeping record of who printed what. So you've got 36 of these that were printed by different people, two hard copies that were handed out, copy machines that don't keep records of what's being copied. So they're coming out of this, which is fewer people are going to get documents. Anything that prints or sends inside or out is going to be joined to the network and records and logs kept. So if nothing else, there's lessons out of it. When they say preponderance, it sounds like there was evidence, but just not as at 4951, as in a civil case, but in a criminal case. Well, they went back and interviewed a number of people three times. And everybody was made to sign an oath under the penalty of perjury that they didn't lie and told the Mm -hmm. truth. So if they come back later, they have that too. Thank you, John. I appreciate it. So how do voters, Democrat and Republican, feel about President Biden's handling of classified documents? How do they feel about his response? Our discussion straight ahead. Plus. This is uh, a difficult subject to bring up, but people are want to know, how's your husband Paul doing after that vicious attack in October? You're going to want to see that answer from former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. She sat down with our own Chris Wallace, what she's now saying about how her husband's doing, how he's recovering. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. All right, the former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is sitting down with CNN for a brand new interview with Chris Wallace talking about the fallout and just what the reaction has been like from the brutal attack on her husband, who she says has paid the price for her political career. This is uh, a difficult subject to bring up, but people are want to know, how's your husband Paul doing after that vicious attack in October? He's doing okay. It's going to take a little while for him to be back to normal. Uh, I feel very sad about it for because of what happened, but also more sad because the person was searching for me. And my dear husband, who's not even that political, actually, paid, paid the price. He's been out a bit because the doctor said he has to have something to look forward to. And, um, and so, again, one day at a time. But thank I'm just going to press asking. this a little. We mm-hmm. see him out in public. But when I've talked to you, when I've talked to your daughter, when I've talked to one of your granddaughters, you all keep using the expression long haul. Long haul. Is it? Physical? Is it emotional? Is it cognitive? When, what's the long haul mean in terms of recovery? Anyone who's had a head injury knows uh, that um, you have to be very careful. You have to be careful about movement. You have to be careful about light. You have to be careful about sound. And um, it just takes a while, probably another three or four months, according to the doctors, for him to be really himself. Another three to four months. Pelosi's going to have much more to say about this. And this week's episode of Who's Talking to Chris Wallace, the new episode is on HBO Max this morning. You can go ahead and watch it. The hour-long version of it is going to air here on CNN Sunday night, 7 p.m. Eastern. I can't wait to see that. I mean, that event really changed her. 
Yeah. It really did. Affect. And the pictures that you see, that's from the Kennedy Center Honors. That was his first time in public. He's wearing a hat. He was wearing gloves. But, you know, it's just been so difficult for them to, to deal with the fallout of that. We wish the entire family, well, an interesting conversation. Remember, we, we spoke with Alexandra Pelosi about it. It yeah. affected the entire family. Yeah. Yeah. So two investigations, two presidents, as President Biden and former President Donald Trump are being investigated for their handling of classified documents. The White House points out the two cases are different, especially since Trump had more than 10 times the number of documents at Mar-a-Lago and he refuses to fully cooperate. We wanted to see how all of this is resonating with voters. And that's why we have assembled this panel of Democrats, Republicans and independents to where to hear what they think. I'm going to start with Alon. Alon, you're a Democrat. What did you think when you heard about the Biden documents and how the, the White House is handling it? Yeah, I thought that it was pretty shocking about how the White House was handling, but I thought that they handled the, the situation completely appropriate. They were cooperating with the Department of Defense or the Department of Justice, and they did things the right way, unlike the Trump administration, where they basically hid away and had to get a subpoena for uh, the documents to be uh, to be came, came up with. But I do believe that the Biden administration handled this situation correctly. They turned over documents to the appropriate places when it was time and when they needed to be turned over. So, Edward, um, you heard what Alon had to say there. You are a Republican. You served in the military for 23 years, handled classified documents. So what do you think of both cases? Well, I think not necessarily looking at how they're handling things differently, but what are the similarities? And the similarities are the fact that classified documents were mishandled. And, and it doesn't matter. No one's above the law, right? And, and the rules apply to everyone. There's nowhere in the rules of handling classified documents that says that they get to be stored in a garage in your personal uh, residence for more than six years, and no one knows where they're at, what they contain, or anything like that. So I don't know if we can say, oh, well, after the crime was committed, the person then turned themselves in and did the right thing or fell on their sword. No, the, the rules were broken, and both cases need to be handled uh, as such, that the rules were broken, and we need to figure out why that happened and how it happened. You feel the same way? You have the same energy, though, for documents that were at Mar-a-Lago that the, the former president said he didn't want to turn back over and that he hid and changed? So, so here's how I feel about that, and, and that is, the national security is bigger than any one person, right? Bigger than any president, vice president, or any of that. And so when, when we're talking about these documents, if they're not supposed to be uh, in, a certain, in someone's uh, possession, then that's the bottom line. And so we have to follow the rules. Okay, great. So, Jen, I want to bring you in here. Jen, you're a Democrat, and you think that there's a notable difference between what Joe Biden did and what Donald Trump did regarding the classified documents. So how do you see it? So I definitely agree that while it is wrong that both presidents had access to these documents, the way that they handled it shows the distinct differences between the two. When you look at the timeline with Donald Trump and these classified documents, the National Archives and Records Administration was the one that reached out to Trump's attorneys to let them know, hey, we're missing some documents. 
you know, let's cooperate, let's get this going. And it took the better part of a year to which Trump refused to hand over these documents. And that's what led to the raid at Mar-a-Lago. And mind you, a special counsel has been appointed. It's gone through these procedures, but Trump has held on for dear life and said, no, 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 and kind of stuck his head in the sand about it. But when you look at the Biden timeline, these documents were identified by President Biden's attorneys in November, and they immediately notified the NARA about these documents. Investigations have been held, a special counsel was appointed, they've cooperated fully and worked to make everything right. Okay, so we've heard from Democrats and Republicans. I wanna hear from an independent because I wonder if independents feel the same way, if, they, if, if people really read that much into the nuances here, if they just think, you know, look, both people did something wrong. Uh, Linda, let's bring in you as an independent. How do you feel Biden is handling the documents? Has it changed how you see him? From what I can tell here in Texas, the, the, the president has handled this better than the former president. And the real question is, so what? You know, the, the independents are sick and tired of all the gamesmanship, gotcha politics, you know, uh, investigative doo-doo shows. It goes on and on and on. Why, why can't we have depoliticized government why are we constantly running a presidential campaign? It's, it's endless war internal to our country, and it's getting old. My question was, does it change how you, uh, how you view or how you see the current president, the document issue? Not really, because Biden is a very experienced politician, and mm -hmm. he's got good advisors, and, you know, the Democrats... The Democrats generally get these things better because they understand governance better than the former president. Okay. But does it make him any better to, to govern? I, I think that both parties are, are taking us down these rabbit holes that people are just getting real tired of. Okay. Uh, Tyra, so let's bring you in as a Republican. Do you think either Trump or Biden, if they are found to have broken the law, should they face consequences? I think when it comes down to the law, yes, they they should. However, I would like to add that this idea that Biden is handling it better, um, I, I, I kind of I, I think it's kind of silly because right now he controls the narrative. They control the narrative the DOJ um, at his fingertips, at the fingertips of the administration. And I understand that there's a special counsel, all this, but. Um, when you make a spectacle out of uh, the, uh, you know, uh, so to answer your question, yes, it should be. But at the end of the day, they made a spectacle out of President Trump for political reasons. Like Linda was saying, uh, they, they're trying to take him down the rabbit hole for campaign purposes. And now it's happening to him. Well, they get to control the DOJ. They get to control everything they're saying. So, of course, the DOJ is going to say, oh, yeah, they've been very cooperative. Well, uh, yeah, that's their side. They're on their own side saying that. So I don't really trust the narrative that's coming out about uh, about that. Elaine, let me bring you in as an independent. Um, you voted for Joe Biden in 2020. If Joe Biden announces that he is running for president again in 2024, would this be a reason for you not to vote for him again? Along with a lot of other things, um we need somebody else. <laughs> I mean, we've, we've got, we, we've had, uh, right now it looks like the two front runners are basically a replay of 20, 
2020 and we we can do better than this um it seems like you want to change i'm wondering though if the document thing was that that did were you thinking this before the document issue or is this something that did the document issue leads you to the point that you're at now that we need a change we need different candidates in 2024 the document issue reinforces strongly reinforces that sentiment if it, let's just say, just for the purposes of, of this interview, if it is Joe Biden and Donald Trump in 2024, would you, you voted for Biden in 2020, who would you vote for in 2024 if the two candidates were the same, Trump and versus Biden? I would not vote for Trump. I know that much. Right. I would be really hoping there's a third alternative. Okay. So the document issue for you really um, reinforced it that you think there should be a change. Well, it reinforces. Yes. Yeah. Thank you, Elaine. Thank you, Edward. Thank you, Tyrus, Alon, Jen, Linda. We appreciate you joining us. This was great. You guys be well. Thank, Thank you. you. Always good to hear from voters. What did you think? Because I did it. What did you think about that? I thought it was really interesting. And I do think it's good perspective to hear, because this is what the White House says all the time, is like regular people don't care about this. Biden said it yesterday. You know, I can't believe reporters are asking about this, you know, not what's happening in California. But it's good to hear that some of them do have concerns. And how did they draw the distinction with Trump and Biden? I found it interesting. Look, there are a lot of possibilities here, but it could not hurt Biden and still help Trump at the same time, if you understand what I'm saying, or it could be the inverse. It could not hurt either of them. I think maybe this, because of the developments over the last couple of weeks, it could be a wash for both of them, where people say, well, they both did something wrong, and so they're on equal footing right now. Trump's legal team would love that. Yeah. We'll yeah. see. All right, also this morning, Nikki Haley is responding to former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo's claims that she suggesting that she conspired to oust Mike Pence as vice president and replace him with herself. We have Maggie Haberman and Anna Navarro here to join us next. Uh oh. All right. In his new memoir, former President Trump's Secretary of State Mike Pompeo suggests that the former U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley, schemed with Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump about replacing Mike Pence as the vice president. Haley is now weighing in, telling Fox News it never happened. Pompeo even says he's not sure if it's true. I never had a conversation with Jared, Ivanka, or the president about the vice presidentship. And, you know, what I'll tell you is it's really sad when you're having to go out there and put lies and gossip to sell a book. I mean, I don't know, you know, why he said it, but that's exactly why I stayed out of D.C. as much as possible to get away from the drama and get away from the gossip. I literally did not speak with anyone in the administration about that at all. It was gossip. Mike Pence is my friend. It is gossip. It was never discussed. If somebody else discussed it, they certainly didn't discuss it with me. I mean, these, it's just gossip. This is all gossip. There's no truth to it. And Mike even says in his book, it's just gossip. Joining us now, CNN political commentator Anna Navarro and CNN political analyst and senior political correspondent for The New York Times, Maggie Haberman. It's just gossip. Good, yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad we weren't having a, a drinking game where the key word was gossip. gossip. Right. Maggie, she says she doesn't know why Pompeo writes this, but I think it's pretty, pretty clear. He's yep. taken some shots at maybe some 2024 rivals. It, it, he, he writes about 
her. He writes about John Bolton. Uh, the one rival he doesn't seem to really take on is Donald Trump. Uh, he's the one he, I mean, I haven't read this book, but what I've read of the coverage is he generally spares the person for whom he worked, other than I think a, a passing, you know, glancing blow in a couple of places on a couple of key issues. But yes, he is clearly writing this because he is looking at the field and he's seeing what is coming. I will say th- these kinds of rumors abounded in real time. You remember this. I remember this. Uh, folks around uh, Kushner and Ivanka Trump denied it. I have no idea what's true. It's not true. I will say she's not wrong that it was really surprising to see a former secretary of state who spent a lot of time attacking the mainstream media for credibility writing. I, I don't know if this is true, but I'm putting it in my book anyway. Yeah, that part is fascinating. Do you believe what she says that is just gossip? Or do you think there's some truth to it, Anna? I, I, I don't know which of the two, to, who of these two to believe, frankly. I think um, I think you need to put something gossipy and salacious in books because that's what gets the coverage. And what I find really fascinating is the amount of former Trump administration people, including the vice president, the U.N., uh, ambassador, the former secretary of state, who are actively seems putting on the, you know, they're actively going through the process of putting on a presidential campaign or a nomination campaign, despite the fact that the guy who they worked for mm-hmm. has already announced that he is running. So just the little effect that Donald Trump's announcement has had is astounding to me, given the support he once had and the loyalty we thought he had. Let me just follow up with Maggie. Someone ask you the same question. Do you believe that it's that there's some truth to this? Uh, I think it is very possible that there is some truth to this. I have no proof. I have no way of knowing for sure. I do know that uh, we were hearing lots of talk about Trump, A, floating the idea of, you know, is Pence loyal? We know that Rupert Murdoch, an ally of Trump's at the time, but also of Jared Kushner, was talking up Nikki Haley to a lot of people. And I know that after uh, a friend of Trump's wrote a column about how he should replace uh, Pence with Haley, that Jared Kushner called that, uh, and I reported this in my book, uh, called that friend and, and complimented him on the column. So there's certainly enough dots there to believe it. But again, I don't want to, I'm not Mike Pompeo. I'm not saying I know it's true. And you're right. Mike Pompeo was like suggesting it in his book, saying bringing John Kelly into it. But it does raise questions about Haley running in 2024, to your point there. And and she was asked about this because she once said, if Trump runs, I'm not going to run. Now she's saying something different. I had a great working relationship with the president. What I'll tell you is the survival of America matters and it's bigger than one person. And when you're looking at the future of America, I think it's time for new generational change. I don't think you need to be 80 years old to go be a leader in DC. I think we need a young generation to come in, step up and really start fixing things. If I run, I'm running against Joe Biden. If I'm this passionate and I'm this determined, why not me? (laughs) <laughs> Sounds like she is heavily considering a run. That was not subtle. Um, and that was quite antithetical to what she has talked about before, about not running if Donald Trump was. Who is Nikki Haley? <laughs> I mean, that's been a question that I think has been looked at for a while since she was governor. I think that she, you know, she was pretty critical of Trump, remember, yeah. in, in 2015, when he was, you know, uh, uh, making all kinds of inflammatory statements. And when she was she pulling went, the Confederate flag off of the correct. state house. Yeah. And then she went to work for him. And then she defended him repeatedly. Uh, and she has defended him over and over and over again. And then she criticized him as soon as he was out of office. And then she tried to backtrack on that. So I think who is Nikki Haley is going to be a question that if she runs is going to get asked a lot. Well, that's what I, I, I ask. I don't put that much stock on anything she says, because she she's always contradicting herself just a little bit afterwards, right? Whenever I hear Nikki Haley, it's, I, I, the, the song plays on my head, you know, will the real Nikki Haley please stand up? 
because she will say whatever I mean, she thinks. What does she thinks. stand for? That's what I'm saying. Like, and is, I'm is she like you, a... she stands for whatever is convenient okay. at the moment, and whatever. And when she gets blowback, then she pulls back. We saw that happen on January 6th during the January 6th. You know what happened after January 6th, and her she was she was critical. Then she went and apologized. Then she was this, and that. So she's she's been all over the place on so many issues. And in the meantime, though, she's on corporate boards. And I can tell you that Nikki Haley today is a, a lot better off financially than she was before being in the administration. So she's been able to really, uh, she has been able to navigate the Trump administration without having great blowback, without being tainted, as some have been, and monetizing on it. But I don't know that she's going to be able to capitalize on that politically, and right I on. have but questions But that's that. the question. Right. I mean, there could be an opening for her if she is one who comes out of the administration unscathed and does and is able to successfully use that into a formidable presidential run. We'll see. Uh, Maggie, you also have new reporting this morning on a conversation we've been talking about all week here, which is Trump's campaign mm -hmm. and his relationship with evangelicals mm -hmm. who delivered the White House to mm -hmm. him in 2016. Now he's criticizing prominent leaders who, who aren't rushing to endorse him. Yeah, as disloyal. Uh, his favorite word, it was also the word that he used for any uh, former officials in his administration who might run against him. We hear him say this all the time. And Nikki Haley was one name I asked him about when I interviewed him for my book and he talked about, you know, disloyalty. Um, look, it is a risky game that he's playing. Um, we don't know what's going to happen with the investigations into him. I just want to caveat that right off the bat. If there is movement there, it's going to make it very complicated for evangelical leaders, even if Trump tried staying in a race. But right now, um, he's the only declared candidate, and yet, and they are grateful to things he did in office, but they have other options. It was notable that Pastor Robert Jeffress hosted Mike Pence last weekend. Now, Jeffress is still sounding very, very pro-Trump, but the fact that he was willing to offer Pence an audience, I think, tells you that you are seeing some shift away from Trump. Will it be enough? I don't know, because we have seen voters, you know, move away from their leaders and toward Trump before. But there is definitely a softening, just as there is in other parts of the Republican I'm getting Party. deja vu all over again, though, because I remember after the Access Hollywood tapes, when the evangelical oh leaders gosh, all stepped yeah. away. And yet... When it when it was clear he was going to be the nominee, they all lined up against him uh, after him. And the voters uh, behind didn't step him. away. That's the thing. I also think um, you're feeling the absence of Jerry Falwell. I probably completely agree with you sitting, when we wrote about that you know, in our he's story. He's probably sitting in a, by a pool somewhere in Miami uh, uh, currently. So you know, I think he was 100% loyal to him, and he's and that's a big void that's uh, been left in evangelical agree. leadership. But, you know, I underestimated Trump and the evangelicals in 2016, and I, I would warn people not to do that because right now you're seeing it from other politicians, you're seeing it from donors, you're seeing it from evangelical leaders, that they are toying with the idea of somebody other than Trump. Mm -hmm. They are indicating they want somebody other than Trump. But if it is Trump, they're going to line up behind him like they once did in 2016. If he's the nominee, they're going to line up behind him. I think the question is what happens in this primary campaign, in which he's still the only declared candidate. So, and I'm still getting deja vu all over again because of all of the Republicans <laughs> right. that seem to be, you know, that are going to be on that stage opening up the path. Can you please Trump. stop bringing up the Access Hollywood tape night? Because I feel like we're still on the air waiting for Trump to respond. I will never get over the Access Hollywood uh, <laughs> tape night like and the fact hours. that we elected, America elected the man in those tapes. I will go to my grave <laughs> thinking about that. Thank you both. We really appreciate it. A nearly six-hour instant classic at the Australian Open, ending with an epic Andy Murray comeback. But there is a medical reason that makes his win and the more, all the more impressive, I should say. We're going to explain that next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break.
I don't know how I managed to, to get through it. I did, I did start playing better as the match went on. Um, and yeah, I have a big heart. I mean, these elite athletes, it, it's amazing. An epic win for British tennis player Andy Murray in the second round of the Australian Open in a nearly six-hour instant classic, the longest in Murray's career. Check out this incredible rally. Murray, once ranked number one in the world, came back from two sets down to defeat Tanahasi Kokonakis. But even more impressive in all of this, 35-year-old is also playing with a metal hip following a joint resurfacing operation in 2019. That is incredible. I'm sure our very own chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, uh, will agree with that assessment. Sanjay, can you tell us what, what does a hip resurfacing entail and who, who are they recommended for and is this astonishing that he did it with right. that medical hit? I mean, you know, I think these, these types of segments sort of come with this, this, uh, this disclaimer that obviously he's a professional athlete and that's incredible what you're watching. But it's sort of the point of doing these types of procedures to get someone back to their level of play and even better, uh, considering that he was probably having troubles with his hip. Hip resurfacing versus hip replacement. Um, these are both operations. They both involve actually doing an operation on the hip. But one, uh, and we can show you images of this, one takes more bone away from the other. So on the left, you see the hip replacement. And you can see uh, when you talk about a hip replacement, the, the hip joint is sort of a ball and socket sort of joint. That, that's what it's like. And you see that ball going, of the, uh, going into the pelvis and that's all titanium, that's on the left. On the right is the hip resurfacing. You're, you're maintaining a lot of the thigh bone, the femur, and you're just basically sort of resurfing, remo removing some of the damaged bone and cartilage. And uh, it, the, the goal is that hopefully someone can get back to playing more quickly. Let me show you x-rays of this real quick. If, if you have a hard time sort of determining uh, what exactly is going on there, if you look at an x-ray of, uh, if we can, this is what a hip replacement looks like. A lot of metal in there, and you can see that ball and socket sort of joint that I was describing. Um, Andy Murray actually put something out on Instagram about his own operation, which gives you an idea from an x-ray standpoint what a hip resurfacing looks like. We can put that up. Um, you can see that, let's uh, take away the banner. It's at, it's at the bottom of the screen there. On the, on the left side of the screen, not the bright spot, that's just some light reflecting. On the left side is his hip resurfacing, so a smaller operation. But that's it. Um, usually it's for younger people, it's for active people, it's a smaller subset of people who will qualify for a hip resurfacing versus a hip replacement. Typically men, men tend to do better with this operation versus women, and typically it's people in their early 50s or, or so that have this operation. He was 31 as you mentioned, when he had a 35 now, and obviously he's had a really stellar recovery. Yeah, it's amazing to see to see such massive surgery like that, to see this kind of recovery. Sanjay, thank you for, for explaining it to it's us. It's great that I won't need that surgery for another 20 okay. years or so. Yeah, you're looking great, Jay. <laughs> <laughs> Sanjay had to laugh at that. Thank you, Sanjay. I appreciate it.
All right, also this morning, there's a standoff underway between the United States and Germany when it comes to tanks and whether to send them across the border to Ukrainian forces. We have Clarissa Ward on the ground live in Kyiv next. And Alec Baldwin will face criminal charges in the fatal shooting of his cinematographer on the Rust movie set. But did prosecutors go too far with these charges? We're going to have a legal debate straight ahead on this. Good morning. A standoff is underway between the U.S. and one of its biggest allies over the fate of Ukraine, and neither side is budging. Our close award is there live. No regrets. President Biden dismissing concerns about the discovery of classified documents at his home and office as the investigation engulfs his White House. Did prosecutors go too far with charging Alec Baldwin in the death of a filmmaker on the Rust movie set? We're going to hear from both sides of the legal debate. He's the failed Republican candidate accused of orchestrating the shootings at the homes of Democrats. Now investigators are looking into whether Solomon Pena's campaign was funded by fentanyl. Also this. for music. David Crosby dying at 81. We're going to speak live with one of his best friends. CNN This Morning starts right now. To all of those stories in just a moment, but first we need to talk about Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, making a desperate plea for more weapons before it is too late. There are signs that Russia is regrouping and preparing to launch a major offensive. And CNN has learned CIA Director Bill Burns personally flew to Kyiv for a secret meeting with Zelensky to brief him on Vladimir Putin's plans. This morning, the Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is at Ramstein Air Base in Germany to huddle with Western allies. President Zelensky spoke virtually at the meeting. The war started by Russia does not allow delays. And I, and I can thank you hundreds of times. And it will be absolutely just and fair given all that we have already done. But, but hundreds of thank you are not hundreds of thanks. All of us can use thousands of wars in discussions, but I cannot put wars instead of guns that are needed against Russian artillery or instead of, instead of the anti-aircraft missile that are needed to protect people from Russian airstrikes. Live now to Kiev and our chief uh, international correspondent, Clarissa Ward. Uh, Clarissa, good morning to you. Zelensky made it clear. He said, we need tanks, not thanks. Will Ukraine get what it needs? Well, that's the million dollar question and a lot will depend on on what Germany ultimately decides in terms of giving these Leopard 2 tanks or allowing the uh, other countries such as Poland to give their Leopard 2 tanks that they are in possession of. Up until this point, it appears that Germany is kind of unwilling uh, to do that unless it sees the U.S. Uh, give these Abrams tanks. The U.S. has said it is not going to give those tanks, but for very different reasons to Germany's reasons purely for really logistical reasons. They run on jet fuel, not diesel, uh, and they would be incredibly difficult for Ukraine to maintain and operate on the battlefield. Basically, what Zelensky says he needs are three things, tanks, 
long-range artillery, F-16s. No indications that he will be getting long-range artillery or F-16s. He is going to be getting a lot of equipment, some $2 billion worth of strikers, various infantry, uh, fighting vehicles, armored personnel carriers, MRAPs, and things uh, such as ammunition, munitions for aerial defensives, things that they really need. But Everyone right now is waiting to see what will happen in terms of these tanks that they so desperately covet and which Great Britain came forward and said, listen, we're going to give these Challenger 2 tanks because the reason that Germany has given up until this point in terms of not wanting to provide tanks is they don't want to risk escalating. Uh, they don't want to risk sort of facing the wrath of President Putin and obviously having the UK step up and fill the void. In, in the first place allows them some kind of diplomatic cover. So waiting to see where Germany will ultimately fall on this issue, Don. Uh, of course, I want to follow up on something. I want to go back to the CIA director briefing Zelensky on this coming offensive. Tell us why that is so important right now. So basically, Bill Burns came here to talk uh, to Zelensky and share some of the intelligence that the CIA is seeing in terms of what Russia is preparing in the coming weeks and months. And you heard Zelensky talking about how time is Russia's ultimate weapon right now. You heard Lloyd Austin as well, the defense secretary, saying, listen, Russia's running out of ammunition, but they are regrouping, they are recruiting, they are building up uh, their military hardware industry. And there is a fear that we are going to be looking at another massive Russian offensive potentially in the coming months. No one knows exactly when that would be. The logic behind this, of course, is that Russia mobilized 300,000 people, 150 were already put into the battlefield, but the remaining 150,000 will be finishing up their training in the coming weeks and months. And so it follows logically that Russia will have uh, something in store. And so what you know, what the U.S. and NATO and, and all of Ukraine's allies want to see is for Ukraine to get the hardware and get the power that it needs to try to catch Russia on the back foot before it has a chance to regroup and get in there with some further counteroffensives. All right. Clarissa Ward in Kiev this morning. Thank you, Clarissa. Appreciate it. In Washington today, President Biden says he has no regrets about how he and his team have handled the classified documents that were found from his time as vice president in the Obama administration. As the White House has faced questions about their initial reluctance to share information about this, the president weighed in last night as he was touring a California town. It's been ravaged by those winter storms we've been showing you. The president saying he feels that the American people don't understand why reporters are asking about this and not that. We found a handful of documents were failed uh, were filed in the wrong place. We immediately turned them over to the archives of the Justice Department. We're fully cooperating, looking forward to getting this resolved quickly. I think you're going to find there's nothing there. I have no regrets. I'm following what the lawyers have told me they want me to do. It's exactly what we're doing. There's no there there. Republicans have accused President Biden of being hypocritical because he criticized former President Trump for taking top secret documents and keeping them at Mar-a-Lago after he left office. This is what Biden said last fall. When you saw the photograph of the top secret documents laid out on the floor at Mar-a-Lago, what did you think to yourself? How that could possibly happen. How one, anyone could be that irresponsible. The White House, though, is loudly pointing out the differences here, saying that Biden has cooperated with the National Archives and with the Justice Department, giving the documents back. 
While former President Trump, as we all know, refused to give them back, it came this huge fight between his attorneys and the Justice Department. It led to that historic surge that happened last fall that was ex executed on the former president's property. Ahead, we're going to talk to former Democratic senator from my home state of Alabama, Doug Jones. He has questioned the White House's handling of those documents. We'll get his take on the president's latest comments. All right. Just because it's an accident doesn't mean it's not criminal. OK, go with me here. That's how a Santa Fe prosecutor is sizing up her decision to file charges against actor Alec Baldwin. She plans to charge him with two counts of involuntary manslaughter in the Rust 2021, that shooting on the movie set uh, that ended in the director's death, the cinematographer's death. The filmmaker Armour Hannah Gutierrez-Reed also facing charges. Cinematographer Helena Hutchinson. Uh, Helena Hutchins, I should say, was killed when she was struck by a live round of ammunition fired from a prop gun held by Alec Baldwin. The DA saying that she believes Rust had a, quote, really fast and loose set with a lack of safety standards and live rounds on set. Watch this. Nobody was checking those, or at least they weren't checking them consistently. And then they somehow got loaded into a gun, handed off to Alec Baldwin. He didn't check it. He didn't do any of the things that he was supposed to do to make sure that he was safe or that anyone around him was safe. And then he pointed the gun at Helena Hutchins and he pulled the trigger. So in an interview with CNN in August, Baldwin blamed Gutierrez, Reed and assistant director Dave Halls, who handed him the gun. Why didn't she check that bullet? Why? Why didn't Halls obey her? She said, don't give him the gun. According to OSHA, don't give him the gun until I come back. Why did he give me the gun? Why didn't he check? So did the DA get the charges in this case right? Joining me now, CNN legal analyst and former federal prosecutor Jennifer Rogers and criminal defense attorney uh, Ken Belkin. Thank you both. So very, just very simply, I'll ask the question, did the DA get the charges right, starting with you? I don't think so. I think this is a stretch and an overreach on the part of the DA with respect to Alec Baldwin. I think the charge against uh, Hannah Gutierrez-Reed is stronger. Uh, the reason is that what she has to prove here, I don't think she can prove. You know, this is a criminal negligence case. This isn't simple negligence like in a lawsuit. That's been done. Regulatory action has been taken. This is a criminal case. They want to send Alec Baldwin to prison for five years. They have to prove that he grossly deviated from a standard of care that he owed. I don't see how they can do that. They can't convince 12 people unanimously, beyond a reasonable doubt, that he owed a duty of care that he breached. When he's handed a gun, says cold gun, there are people responsible for that. I don't think a jury's going to find that. Okay. Listen, let's be clear. First off, no one wants to see Mr. Baldwin go to jail, least of all not a defense attorney like me. But let's be clear. In this jurisdiction, this DA has a woman who was killed by a man who pointed a gun that he did not check to see if it was loaded at her and pulled the trigger. Now, he says he didn't pull the trigger. By the way, that is his best defense at trial, is that he did not pull the trigger and the gun malfunctioned. But even still, he pointed an unchecked gun at a human being, something you are never supposed to do. But what I was struck by is that he has maintained he did not pull the trigger. They talked about how this was sent off to the FBI as it has one of the best labs in the world. They said someone pulled that trigger. Here's what she said. Well, the trigger wasn't pulled. I didn't pull the trigger. So no. you never pulled the trigger? No, 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 no. I, I would never point a gun at anyone and pull a trigger at them, never. Are you confident that he actually pulled the trigger? Yes, absolutely. The FBI lab is one of the best in the world, and we absolutely believe that the trigger had to have been pulled in order for that gun to go off. The trigger was pulled. I mean, what do you say to that? 
What I say to that is the DA is overstepping there by making that comment. That is a question of fact for a jury to decide. He says that trigger was not pulled by him. It is up to a jury to make that decision. Of course, there's that FBI report and their experts. He is entitled to bring his own experts into this. And I'm sure Mr. Baldwin can afford the best ballistics experts available. And he's going to get them and he's going to need them if this case goes to trial. I actually don't think it matters whether he pulled the trigger. I mean, he's entitled to treat that prop gun as if it's empty. I mean, that's what he's been told. He's doing this cross-pull thing in the rehearsals. I actually don't think that fact matters. To me, what matters is, what is he entitled to rely on? What duty of care does he owe? And did he breach that duty of care? I don't think he did. Well, first, you should probably never, you well, not probably, you should never point a gun at another person, ever, loaded or unloaded. It's the basic rules of gun safety. Everyone should know that. And by the way, his co-defendant says that he eschewed those gun safety classes on set. So that's, you know, an interesting portion of her defense that you're going to hear out there. But in any event, he should never have pointed. Okay, okay, okay. He should never have pulled the trigger. Isn't that the whole point of the scene is for him to... Yeah, it's a Western. It's a Western. But he's pointing it at a person. You can't put, they could, by the way, they could set up a camera. He doesn't have to be pointing it at a human being. I know you're saying it doesn't have to be, but that is, that's the whole point of the human being is now dead. I understand that. Listen, I'm just asking the question because people at home are thinking the same thing. It is a movie. They are acting. The gun is supposed to be empty. And the, the director says, okay, go pull the trigger, do the scene. How do you pull the trigger and not pull the trigger? Listen, if you are pointing a gun at a person, it is on you to make sure that gun is unloaded. And second of all, you should never be pointing a gun at a person and pulling a trigger, loaded or unloaded. See, this is where I think that that the DA is overstepping, because what she said yesterday to Josh Campbell and also in a New York Times interview is that he had an absolute duty to make sure that that gun was unloaded. Just like Ken is saying here, that's a strict liability standard. That's not the correct legal standard here. He doesn't have a strict liability duty here. What about the fact that they basically said this entire set was kind of a disaster is how they described it, that everyone was complacent? He is not just an actor on this. I think most people would say, well, he's an actor. Someone else should have checked it. He's also a producer. So does he bear responsibility in that sense? So that's a separate legal theory. And they're obviously pursuing that as well. And what I would say to that is, you know, 550 pages of an investigative report didn't show me that he had those duties and breached them. There are other producers on this. Uh, this movie. Sometimes producers just give money and get their name on the credits, right? The question is, what actually were his duties as a producer, and did he breach those duties? There are plenty of people coming in now and saying, producers don't do that. Producers don't make sure everything is safe. That's what you hire an armorer for. That's what you have assistant directors and prop managers for. But what you're saying is what people say in the real world, so to speak. And, and make believe in Hollywood. This is this is what actors are sending. There's one last night, a very accomplished actor who sent me this. Says, Involuntary manslaughter uh, charge against Alec Baldwin is outrageous. The assistant director and prop person are solely responsible. I have been in over 100 TV shows before. I won't say which show uh, he or she is on. Mostly action shows with a lot of shooting. One almost always relies on prop and AD, period. And in all cases, one, of course, pulls the effing trigger. That's what the actors are saying. That, that is just how it's done. But this was also a rehearsal. Maybe it didn't have the formality of a shoot, which could also be a problem. He might have expected it to have that formality. Yeah. But in any event, he did point the gun. He did pull the trigger. As far as the producers, I think that's more of a civil liability issue. Uh, the final act that resulted in Miss Hutchins' death was Alec Baldwin's. Well, we'll see. He says he doesn't, didn't pull the trigger. We'll see what the courts decide. Obviously, this is not far from over. 
Jennifer Rogers, Kim Belkin, thank you both for being Good here. Good to see both of you. Thank you. Thank you. All right, this morning there's been a major shakeup at the top of Netflix just as the streaming giant had finished last year on pretty solid financial footing. Why the sudden change? How does this impact you as a Netflix watcher? We're going to tell you next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This morning, there has been a major shakeup in the leadership at Netflix as the co-founder, Reed Hastings, who has been there back in the day, has now announcing he is stepping down as CEO of the world's top streaming service. He's going to stay on as executive chairman. Netflix has come a long way since its early days as a DVD mail service, as we all remember. You know, it's like the hare and the tortoise, and we were the tortoise. Um, the hare got ahead, and then they're all bankrupt, and we're now cash flow positive and successful. Hastings' departure comes as the company rebounded after taking quite a tumble early last year, contributing to 450 employees that were laid off. The streaming giant actually lost subscribers in the first two quarters of 2022, which was the first decrease that they had seen in more than a decade. Since then, it has surpassed expectations, though, gaining more than 7 million subscribers this past quarter alone. So joining us now to discuss this is the host of On with Kara Swisher, Kara Swisher, and professor of marketing at NYU Stern School of Business and the host of the Prof G Show podcast, Scott Galloway. Together, the two of them host Pivot, which I'm sure many of our viewers have listened to. Pivot. Kara, I guess just Pivot. my first question is, what was your reaction to him stepping down? Mm-hmm. I'm not surprised at all. I think, you know, he's been at that job a long time. I think uh, he had wanted to go earlier, but there were a lot of troubles, especially as everyone entered the DVD, excuse me, the DVD, you said that, the streaming market like <laughs> Disney and others. And so uh, I think he was there just to get them through the, the more difficult time, which they had uh, about nine months ago. And it was always the intention that he was going to move up and out, which is a Netflix thing. Yeah. But I mean, he's, ste- he's stepping down from day to day operations. He's still going to have some influence. Yeah. No. Oh, sure. Absolutely. They're, they never go away, as you know. You know, they'll never they never leave. Look at what's happening at Disney or elsewhere. They often sort of stick around Starbucks, lots of places like that. Mm. So what do you look? Netflix has had, Scott, uh, a rough year in 2022. They've had layoffs. They're losing subscribers. They're facing a tougher market with competition from other streaming platforms like Amazon, HBO Max, uh, Apple TV, among others. Last November, Netflix rolled out a newer, lower price plan with ads. How do you think subscribers will respond after enjoying this ad-free content for so many years? Well, the numbers uh, would indicate that subscribers are receptive to it. They added 8 million subscribers. Actually, Netflix this morning is one of the biggest gainers in pre-market. And you just got to take a moment to recognize uh, that this guy is a first ballot Hall of Fame business executive. Think about how visionary uh, this individual and this company has been. 1997, he said the largest distribution network was a million people delivering mail into 100 million homes. And they started with DVDs via mail. And then what is arguably the greatest pivot in business history, uh, predicting the onslaught and the increase of broadband, went into streaming, went into vertical content with House of Cards. There are more people now who have a recurring revenue relationship with Netflix globally than Amazon Prime. But his accomplishments here are just you know, short of the troubles of the last 12 months, looking at his career, his accomplishments are nothing short of extraordinary. 
Mm. Yeah, he and mm-hmm. he kind of dragged the rest of the industry with them when it came to streaming. I, I thought yeah. about you know what he said about the origin of it was so. I think he had a late fee on a movie that he had rented from when there were still stores where he went and rented DVDs. Yeah. So I think, Kara, the question that it raises with his departure is, yeah. you know, what does the future of a Netflix look like, or, or just the streaming industry overall? Well, there's all kinds of rumors that it's always going to get bought by various people um, from Apple to Disney for over the years. But Scott is right. This guy has pivoted and pivoted and pivoted again, and he doesn't mind sort of making a mess doing it because he knows the right direction to go in. That said, there's huge amounts of trouble in streaming. The money being spent is enormous mm-hmm. and the competitors are big, right? And so he's 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 been doing, being as innovative as he can, but others have caught up. It's not unsimilar to what's happening to Elon Musk with Tesla, where now there's competitors, now mm-hmm. there's really something going on, even though they were dominant. But there's no question that Reed Hastings um, has pioneered almost everything in this area and and now he's leaving it to others and i think it's i i I don't i don't think they're out of the woods yet on trouble because i think others are getting better and better but you see pressure on disney over streaming with nelson peltz and buying hulu and there's this this market's still got a lot to shake out especially the high cost which scott you talk about all the time Mm -hmm. scott go ahead respond you were your name was invoked yes scott yeah well look shocked i mean this is this is the 10 ton gorilla in the space and name another streaming network that isn't hemorrhaging money right now. I mean, whether it's Disney uh, plus being the cause of a huge uh, expense, $1.2 billion in losses in that group, Amazon and Apple have infinitely deep pockets, but if they were to break out the cost of their network, you would see a lot of red ink here. This company is the dominant force in streaming, just uh, what even even visionary around international squid games out of Korea, they built a 10,000 pers- person production center so they could regionalize content in Spain. I mean, the bottom line is in the streaming market, by any reasonable standards, it's been Netflix and the seven dwarves. And to Kara's point, they have competition for the first time, which will drive down margins But from a shareholder perspective, a business perspective. Netflix defines the category. And, and as of this morning, is up dramatically again and blew away their subscriber growth numbers. I just, when someone steps down, you, you got to look at all 28 frames of the movie. And this is an exceptional story. Yeah. Listen, yeah. We, we've yeah, got to run. I We've got to run care, but I do find myself uh, now when I add it up, I spend, I think, more money on streaming than I actually spent on cable. Mm-hmm. And if someone would just That's come right. up with a bundle for cable, it's called cable. Great idea. I would, you know. It's called cable. It's, it's called just, cable. It's we'll so see. It much might easier it and might faster just to flip through when on regular cable than going out of an app and then into yep. another app and out of it and then spending mm-hmm. more money. One of you just like paid, made one payment. It's called cable. Thank yeah. you, guys. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Thanks a lot. Kara Swisher, Scott Galloway. Thank you both. Also this morning, George Santos is rejecting calls to step down over his tangled web of lies about his past. What do his constituents think, though? We're actually going to be live in his district next. Yikes. And a new development in the case of the failed Republican candidate who allegedly hired a team to shoot up the homes of Democratic officials in New Mexico. Why investigators are looking at his campaign donations. That's next. New York Republican Congressman George Santos facing growing pressure to resign over his litany of lies. He lied about his education, work and family history and religious background, 
All of this as he faces federal and local investigations and the revival of a criminal fraud case against him in Brazil. Now he is on two House committees, and despite calls from members of his own party to step down, he's refusing. He's not backing down. He says he's going to stay there. So let's go to CNN's Miguel Marquez, live in Manhattan, New York, which is part of Santos District. Good morning to you, Miguel. What are you hearing from the people who live in his district? Let me absolutely blow your mind. They'd like him to step down. They'd like him to go. They are tired of talking about it. We were out here, what, a week and a half ago, and people were over it then. They are way over it now. The frustration is, is that there's not a lot that they can do. So even people who voted for him say, look, I want him to go. I want not just a few Republicans who have stepped up and said he has to go, but they want the Republican leadership in Congress from McCarthy on down to freeze him out and to force him out, much like the Democrats did with Anthony Weiner back in, what, 2011 or 2012, uh, where they basically forced him to resign eventually. They would like to see a much more concerted effort to go. They're tired of talking about it. They are frustrated that he's, that he's there, that there is nothing that they can do about it until the next election. So until that happens, they will just have to wait. Here's what one Santos supporter said as he was getting ready to get on the train to Manhattan this morning. What's the level of frustration right now? Very high. I think it was above and beyond what many politicians do, you know, exaggerate a little bit. He, what he did was criminal. Would you like Speaker McCarthy and the Republican leadership to, to, to freeze him out, to ask him to resign? I mean, does something more need to happen from that level? Yes, I think they should get rid of him. They should vote him out on the, on the House level. So look, there is a, a, a wide range of concerns that people have with George Santos, from the money to all of the lies. Most people here are, are most concerned with the lies. The money, the campaign finance, they, they believe that there is an investigation there and that may produce some sort of results for them that may move him out of office uh, sooner. Uh, but they are most concerned with just this, this massive number of lies. Even the people who say, I want a Republican in office and at least he's a vote there say, Probably better if he went. Back to you guys. All right. Gail Marquez, interesting. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Speaking of questions about campaign finance, the man accused of hiring gunmen to shoot up the homes of Democratic lawmakers after losing an election is now under more scrutiny as investigators are looking into whether Solomon Pena's failed political campaign was funded with drug money. That is what a law enforcement source tells CNN. Campaign finance records show that one of the alleged gunmen actually contributed more than $5,000 to Pena's campaign. Now there are questions about whether that money came from the sale of fentanyl. Joining us now to talk about this with this reporting is CNN's chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst, John Miller. John, you've been looking into the story. I'm so struck by this line from your reporting that campaign finance docs documents show that the single largest cash contributor to him is a man that police say he hired to help with these shootings. You know, Caitlin, breaking down the question itself sounds absurd, which is what is a guy doing in the candidate's car, according to police, with a smoking gun that is a ballistic match to a shooting 38 minutes before of a Democratic rival sitting on top of $3,000 in cash and almost 900 fentanyl pills valued at about 15,000 on the street, um, and he's the person who is responsible for a $5,000 contribution and that of a family member for another $4,000, claims to be homeless in his prior contacts with police, 
has no financial resources. So if the money from fentanyl isn't where the campaign contributions was coming from, where was it? And this guy got pulled over. But I mean, if he had not been pulled over, you know, do you think the investigation would have developed in the way that we've seen it go on? I don't think so, uh, because, you know, he was on the local radar as a low end criminal. But the allegations brought by uh, Albuquerque police are that he was one member of a four person team hired by the candidate to shoot up Democratic rivals homes to intimidate them after the election, which he claimed was stolen. John Miller. It's fascinating. Yeah, fascinating. John Miller, thanks for your reporting on this. All right, also, President Biden has just made his first comments in about a week on classified documents that were found at his home and former office. He says there's no there there. We're going to talk to the former senator and a close Biden ally, Doug Jones, about all of this next. No regrets. That's what President Biden says in his first public remarks in about a week on the classified documents that were found at his home and his former office from his time as vice president in the Obama administration. We're fully cooperating, looking forward to getting this resolved quickly. I think you're going to find there's nothing there. I have no regrets. I'm following what the lawyers have told me they want me to do. It's exactly what we're doing. There's no there there. President, they're echoing his team at the White House as they are pledging full cooperation, but downplaying the fallout of this, drawing a distinction from what is happening with former President Trump. The White House now believing this is a current storm that is going to pass. And joining us now to talk about this is the former Democratic senator from Alabama, Doug Jones, a close ally of President Biden's and this White House, also a former U.S. attorney. We should know. Good morning and thank you for being here. You know, you heard the president there saying he doesn't have any regrets about this has been handled. What's your reaction? Well, I think he's absolutely right in terms of handling the documents, and that's what he was referring to. You know, I've said all along, it seems that the, the president's team, whether it's mainly his legal team, Caitlin, is handling these documents absolutely correctly. In fact, they may be overcorrecting because that's who Joe Biden is. But in terms of how they all the archives got involved, cooperated with the Justice Department, this is always about the documents. Even though Trump uh, situation started out about the documents and retrieving those documents. So I, I don't think he should have any regrets about how the documents have been handled. Not even about the, the idea that some of them were found in a garage. Obviously, that's not a secure location, despite the president saying it was locked because his Corvette was parked in there. You know, look, again, how you handle the, the discovery of those documents. Clearly, uh, somebody made a mistake at some point and documents appear to be inadvertently transferred when he left office. Inadvertently transferred. That is the clear implication from everything you've seen, everything that you've read. And we don't know all of the facts, but that seems to be the clear implication. But in terms of the discovery of those documents, once they were discovered, you've got to call the archives. You've got, you've got to cooperate with the Justice Department. That is something that Donald Trump and his lawyers did not do, which created a firestorm, which created a situation where you had to get a search warrant to retrieve those documents. Not in this case. They've done everything by the book. And in fact, they probably, I, I think, may have overcorrected by making sure that they are cooperating. How do you think they've overcorrected? What do you mean by that? 
Well, I, you know, if you, you know, there was a Washington Post article yesterday about how they have handled, it, and I think that they did everything by overcorrecting. Some lawyers might would have been a little bit more aggressive in terms of trying to get to the bottom of it themselves. Uh, that's what lawyers do: interviewing witnesses, doing those things. The president's team decided that they would not do that because they did not want to give the appearance of tampering with a witness. That is a that is a absolutely correct way to proceed with this. It's an absolutely um, uh, by the book way to proceed with this. Some people may have done it a little bit different, but in terms, the key here and the real key is what did they do when the documents were discovered and they immediately got in touch with the appropriate officials to turn them over. And that is the key. It is always about the documents when you're dealing with classified material. It is about getting the documents back into a secure location. But Senator, what about the idea that they did not disclose it publicly? Should they have told the public sooner that they had found these documents? I think that that's just a, a judgment call. I don't think they should have disclosed it the minute that this uh, happened for the very reason we're having to talk about it now. It's, it, it should not be a political issue. Um, the media, folks in, uh, that talk about it, Republicans, would make it a distraction and a media issue. They needed to cooperate with the archives and the Department of Justice and follow their lead. And that's exactly what they did. You know, anytime, Caitlin, that you have an intersection between politics and the law, it's difficult to juggle those, especially when uh, part, uh, one of the parties is the president of the United States. And I understand the need for transparency. But there's also the ability of, of trying to work and to make sure that those that you are cooperating with that are retrieving these documents understand that you are going to fully cooperate and work with them. And that's that's what they did. I have no problem with the fact that they didn't disclose uh, earlier. Senator, you also helped guide last year with the Supreme Court confirmation for now Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson. You obviously know the Supreme Court well. There has been no conclusion in one of the most stunning breaches in the history of the Supreme Court, this leak of the decision on, on Roe versus Wade. Are you surprised they weren't able to find who leaked this? No, I'm really not, Caitlin. You know, the, 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 the Supreme Court is, is an institution that has been built on trust. And whenever you have a breach of that trust, it is going to be a difficult situation, even with the technology that you have these days to try to find who breached that. I think the big question that's left unanswered uh, is whether or not any of the justices or anyone close to them was even interviewed or they uh, computers looked at. That's a little bit unanswered right now, and I think it'll always be an asterisk um, on this report. But I'm not really surprised, and I think that what you've seen with all the justices signing off on it, they felt like they did the best that they could and it went as far as they could. So yeah, I'm but just it, not really surprised. Can it be find. a complete investigation if they didn't actually interview the justices themselves or their partners? Well, I personally don't think so. Uh, but it was unclear. It did not say whether they did or they did not. That's why I think that there's an asterisk there. And that I, I think they ought to try to clean that up a little bit and make sure that they did. If they haven't, they should. I, that's my personal opinion. Uh, if you want to try to get to the bottom of something, you have to do that full bore top to bottom. And that's what I think. Just just like with, uh, you know, with Trump and the uh, documents, you've got to interview the people that uh, it was there. And it's I, I think there's a I think there's a, a little bit of a gap because it's just an unknown right now. Yeah. And I, I'll note Sipacinan has reached out to the Supreme Court to ask, did they actually interview the justices themselves? They didn't comment. They just referred to the report, which obviously didn't say that. Former Senator Doug Jones, thank you so much for joining us this morning and Roll Tide. 
Thank you, Caitlin. Roll Tide. <laughs> Got to sneak that one in there. <laughs> Always. Um, up next, the music world remembering a legend. age of 81, David Crosby, legendary singer and songwriter, has passed. He was a folk and rock music pioneer known for being a founding member of the Birds and of Crosby, Stills, and Nash. His family announcing it in a statement reading, his legacy will continue to live on though his through his legendary music. Peace, love, and harmony to all who knew David and those he touched. We will miss him dearly. Yes, that is a sentiment that's shared by many. Uh, family, friends, and fans alike are mourning his passing, including Steve Silberman, who wrote this. After growing up a fan of David Crosby's music, he became my closest older friend. I am heartbroken to lose him, but the arc of our friendship was perfect. And so Steve is here to talk about it. Steve, good morning to you. Thank you so much for joining us here on CNN this morning. You say that good you Good morning. Were, Thank you. Absolutely. You say that you were a huge fan and then you became close friends. Um, and he's your closest, oldest friend. Talk to us about that. And sorry for your loss, by the way. Pardon me. For well, that. what happened was I, I fell in love with his music uh, when I was a teenager. I heard Guinevere playing in a sandal shop in Provincetown. And I immediately asked the guy who it was who was singing, and he said a name that sounded like a law firm, Crosby, Stills, and Nash. But it was <laughs> it was the most beautiful music I'd ever heard. And uh, so I collected bootleg tapes of David's. And so in the early 90s, Crosby, Stills, and Nash were planning a box set with bonus rare tracks. And a friend of mine was with them, and kept saying, well, Steve Silberman says, the best version of this is that, you know? And so he kept saying that, and eventually, Crosby, Stills, Nash just called me up and said, come down to this hotel in Los Gatos and help us plan this box set. So that was how I met David. But what really sealed the deal of our friendship was that I got David online for the first time <laughs> after a friend of mine told me that he was a quote unquote fax addict. So I said, fax addict? He should have email. So I got him an email account and he joined a very early online community called The Well. And he was instantly, you know, a hit. He was outrageous. He was honest. He loved hearing people's honest evaluations of his performances. Uh, he just took to the online world like a fish to water. And of course, that, you know, continued through Twitter. And then when he was having his uh, medical problems, including a liver transplant, he had a sort of mystical experience. This is not widely known, but he had a sort of mystical experience being online and feeling the presence of all these people who were wishing him well as he went through a liver transplant. And we ended up talking all night one night 
in chat while he was in London with Crosby, Stills, and Nash. And we really got to know each other very well then and continued to be friends for the next couple of decades. It's amazing, A, that you got him on email. I know he was still so active on Twitter. Everyone loved his tweets. But what I loved is that you said one of your favorite memories is you guys started this podcast. You said we'd hang out, smoke pot, he'd play music, we'd go to his favorite restaurants, and it turned into the two of you creating a podcast together. That's true. We figured out that basically, you know, since we had such wide-ranging, hilarious, probing philosophical conversations on the phone, maybe we could do it in a place where other people could hear it. So I ended up spending several days down at the Crosby's house in San Inez, and it was a blast. We were kind of like little kids who had met each other in school and decided that we wanted to have fun together. And so we would spend hours a day making the podcast and then, you know, head out to David's favorite restaurants where, you know, he knew all the waiters and all that. Hey, Steve. And uh, David was a hilarious, David was a hilarious, brilliant, super inquisitive guy. Um, Even though he's, you know, he has this public or had this public image of being this kind of prickly curmudgeon, he was incredibly shy, actually, and incredibly sensitive. Hey, Steve, if you were not to be rude, I'm watching the clock here, and I want to get this in before we run out of time, please. I think it's very important because you spoke to him two days ago, correct? And what did you talk about? Yes, I did. Yeah. Uh, We talked about how excited he was to be playing a concert with the Canadian singer-songwriter Bruce Coburn at the end of February. And... And he's also... He's, he has another album in the can, as they say, with the young musicians who are in his Lighthouse band. So there is wow. another David Crosby album that's about to come out. Yeah. Um, and he was very excited about that, too. Yeah. I wanted to get that in, Steve. So sorry for me jumping in there. But um, we know he's great. And Caitlin and I have been waxing poetic about him all morning and just his impact not only on the music business, Mm -hmm. but just on the world. Thank you so much for joining. Again, we're sorry for your loss, okay? You be well. Thank you, buddy. I appreciate it. Take care. Yeah, we listened to them all day. I can already tell. Yeah. Well, that wraps it up for us. Hopefully, Poppy will be back on on Monday. Hey, thanks for watching, everyone. CNN Newsroom starts right after this break. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.